The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. On Ascension Sunday 2023, let the church of Jesus Christ say, Yes, church, you heard that correctly. Today is Ascension Sunday. It's not technically Ascension Day for the liturgical purists out there. That was last Thursday, which was the 40th day after Easter, as it happens every single year since the very first Ascension Day we read about today in Acts chapter 1. It was a day that took place 40 days after Jesus's resurrection. But I mean, you all know this already because I am sure that you have already sent out your save the dates for your Ascension Sunday brunches. I know that some of you were up feverishly last night typing into Google what to get your spouse for Ascension Sunday, or you're busy reading the latest blog entitled 40 Gifts Under $10 Perfect for Ascension Sunday. You've got your Ascension Sunday wrapping paper picked out, and all your Ascension stockings are hung out above the fireplace. Your Ascension tree is looking great in your family room. All you need to do is find your Ascension ornament boxes in your attic later this afternoon. I doubt that any of that is true. But if you did, if you, if you are a person who did, please find me afterwards. Uh, If John Calvin and Martin Luther and many of the other reformers had their way, however, we would celebrate the ascension of Jesus with the same amount of devotion that we do his incarnation, crucifixion, or resurrection. For John Calvin in particular, Ascension Day was one of the big five days on the Christian calendar, right up there next to Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and Pentecost, Ascension. Nearly every Sunday that we gather for worship here, we stand up at a certain point in the service. We're going to do it in a little bit here. We stand up and we say out loud a series of statements of faith. We call it the Apostles' Creed. The Creed is the most efficient summary of the basic beliefs of Christian faith. It cuts across denominational biases, political allegiances, and geographic or ethnic locations. Some of you may know that the Apostles' Creed is called the Apostles' Creed because of this old 4th century legend that went something like this. All the 12 apostles get together in one room, and they all, in a moment of fervent devotion, go to a piece of paper and write down one essential thing they want the church to believe in about Jesus. And they go back, and they put all the statements in a hat And they pull it out and, boom, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We know a little bit more now, and we know that probably wasn't the way it actually went down. But what we do know is that the Apostles' Creed is old. It's, It's probably the oldest statement of faith that is written outside of the Scriptures. We know that it was first used at Christian baptisms where Christians or their parents would say these words before they received the sacrament of baptism. The words of the Apostles' Creed became a short list of doctrines that unite the church around what we believe. There's much about the world and God and faith that the Creed doesn't really talk about. There's much in what is left unsaid by those words that we Christians have divided over, and sometimes God help us even killed each other over. But nevertheless, the 12 statements of faith 
that make up the Apostles' Creed are sufficient guides for us in understanding what the Scriptures teach. Today, I want to draw your attention to the sixth article of faith, what we might call the middle child of the creed, okay? A statement sandwiched between statements about Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' coming again to judge the world. It's a line that we know here as he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He, Jesus, ascended into heaven. He, Jesus, sits at the right hand of God. What in the world does this mean for us today? In today's reading from Acts chapter 1, we find ourselves at the very end of another 40-day sequence in the post-Easter life of Jesus. You'll recall Jesus was raised on the first day of the week after the Passover. Now, in our reading from Acts chapter 1, we find ourselves 40 days later, and in our text, Jesus and his friends are walking up a hillside. In the minds of Jesus' disciples, things must have been going so well for them. I mean, the teacher who they thought was God's chosen representative had died horribly but now was back alive, miraculously. They had all seen it. They had all talked to him afterwards. Since only God could raise the dead, the disciples were more convinced that God was working through Jesus now than they ever have been, and they believed strongly that God was using Jesus to communicate something about God to people on earth. I mean, not even death can stop this. The disciples were convinced that things were starting to look up for their ragged band of Jewish fishermen and tax collectors. Now, with Jesus having conquered death, well, now they could get some real political stuff done. Lord, one of them asks Jesus on the walk up that hillside, Lord, is now the time where you're going to restore the kingdom? In other words, is now the time for political action? Lord, is now the time for military might? Lord, is now the time for you, the king, to come and throw out the Romans, to, to conquer Caesar? Is now the time, Lord? They were so excited about the possibilities that this new era was going to bring. Jesus was alive. Anything was possible. But Jesus, oddly, frustratingly, tells them that, well, they don't get to know such things. And really that that kind of knowledge is not the end or the aim of human existence. Instead, Jesus says, the aim, the, the trajectory of life is to bear witness to Jesus, to be his witnesses. To imagine yourself standing in the witness stand of a courtroom and every word you say tells another aspect about God's great love for this world in Christ. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says. You'll receive a share of God's spirit, and that will enable you to take this news to the end of the earth. Jesus says that is all you need to know right now. And then, even more strangely, at the height of their excitement and anticipation for the future, but also at a time where they may have 
about a million more questions, Jesus leaves, disappears into a strange cloud. The text simply describes it like this. He was lifted up and a cloud took him away from their sight. That was it. Their hope, their optimism, left on the hillside as they searched the heavens wondering, where is Jesus now? Why did he leave us? And what are we going to do next? Ascension. Church, what we think about Jesus' ascension is rather pivotal for our faith. One of the things that we Christians believe is that Jesus was truly human, even as he was truly God. Even after his resurrection, Jesus was still human. Ponder this for a moment. In this material, mortal plane of existence, the risen Christ was still, even after his resurrection, limited by his singular humanity. He was still limited by his particular existence. He existed still in one place at one time. He did not yet exist in all places at all times. Had Jesus remained on earth, and had he not ascended to be where God dwells, his mission of helping all humanity experience the healing and restorative power of God, well, it would have to take a different form. If Jesus was going to stay with us here in a body stuck in one geographic place, he would have to figure out how he was going to take this message out to the world. Here are some options he could have done. Option one, Jesus goes out on tour. He becomes the religious version of Taylor Swift. He watches as people sell their homes to buy a ticket to see his Worldwide Eras tour with the hope that they could see the Messiah from a distance. They could take a selfie at an arena and maybe they could be healed or forgiven of their sins remotely. But even with year after year of global tours filling packed arenas, he still would not be able to encounter every person on the planet. Option two. If you build it, they will come. Jesus could just stay put. He could become a religious tourist attraction. A thing to see on your next pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You make a trip to see the risen Jesus, you get to pose with them for a moment, and then you go home, return to your life as usual. Or option three, Jesus starts a really popular multi-site church plant with satellite campuses all over the globe. He delivers a weekly sermon from Jerusalem, and it's broadcast across the globe so the faithful can tune in and listen to Jesus wherever they are. There, problem solved, right? Wrong. The problem with all of these options is that as long as there is a flesh and blood Jesus in this mortal plane to see or touch or listen to, the church will not be fully empowered to carry the news about Jesus out to the ends of the earth. As long as there is a flesh and blood object of curiosity, 
There can be no worldwide mission, no global gospel proclamation, no community of Jesus followers across the globe who were somehow experiencing the power of Christ in their daily life. All it would be would be a group of Jesus slash Taylor Swift fans who get together to talk about what the concert they saw last year was like. If Jesus' mission was to somehow announce to the entire globe that salvation has been created and is now accomplished, if Jesus' mission was to plant the seeds of the kingdom of God in such a way that they would grow up into trees of justice and love and mercy and hope for the entire world to experience, well, then Jesus simply could not remain in one geographic place at one geographic moment. So he didn't. It was for a reason that Jesus left. He ascended, as we say, a term for what we mean when we say he reunited in the space where God dwells with the presence of God. He rejoined the fabric of God in a space that had been up to that point off limits for human access. Jesus ascended so that he could give us the Holy Spirit, a gift that we'll celebrate here next Sunday. But, but beyond the gift of the Spirit came, that, that comes with Christ's ascension, today, Ascension Sunday, is a day where we celebrate and we do so joyfully because we remember that for the first time in all created history, for the first time in the vast 14 billion year history of the universe and beyond, for the first time, the fabric of God's limitless, formless, spaceless being stretched over and among the universe like a tapestry of light and goodness. This imperceptible yet personal being we call God had wrapped himself up in human flesh. When Jesus ascended, it wasn't like a two-stage rocket booster, okay, at which some point his flesh just like melted away and Jesus becomes pure spirit. No, what we believe as Christians is that Jesus's ascension means he carried into God's very being his flesh, his scars, his wounds. He carried what makes us us into where God dwells. And that means that right now, as the scriptures say, we have in God's presence a representative a mediator. We have somebody who stands in the courts of God as both God and human and who says with convincing surety, Lord, do you see how their trials grieve them? Who holds his wounds out and says, do you see how they are afflicted, Lord? We have a mediator whose nail-scarred hands and feet now stand before God as a witness to the realities of human suffering and pain, realities that many of us have brushed up against in our life. We look to the heavens and we do not see an abstract being who does not understand, but we see Jesus Christ at God's right hand who does understand. This is one of the reasons why we Christians end our prayers often. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
Why? Because whenever we offer prayers, we want to remind one another that the only way we have of being sure that God hears our prayers is because Jesus Christ, our representative, is standing before him pleading our case, offering our prayers to God as a priest offers incense at an altar. So then, church, Christ is seated in heaven at the right hand of God, the scriptures tell us, seated in authority, vested with power to guide this universe to its proper end. But today is not just a day of mystical contemplation of the ascension of Christ, fun though it may be. Today, like the first disciples, we are here. We're on another hillside, the hillside of this sanctuary at this day in the year 2023. And we have heard again the news that Christ has ascended. But like those first disciples, we can become a little bit curious. Like, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was supposed to fix all of our political problems. Wait, 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 wait a minute. I thought Jesus was supposed to solve all of our philosophical quandaries. And also, where exactly did Jesus go? How is it possible for a man to dwell where God is? What does it mean that human flesh is now in heaven? What's God's realm even like? When is Jesus going to come back and finish the work that he started? Like the disciples in the first century, we can spend our days staring up into the heavens, trying to puzzle out all of the answers to all of the questions Jesus didn't answer. But what the angels said to the disciples on the hillside, the angels also say to us today. Why are you staring into heaven? Jesus will return. That's all you need to know. You don't need timelines. You don't need anxiety. You don't need to feel you have to prove the existence of God or heaven. All you need to know is that Jesus will return. Now, don't you have some work to do? 2,000 years later, like the disciples, you and I often come to the risen Christ with lesser timeline questions in hand. We come to God and we say, God, where should I work? We say, what job should I take? Who should I marry? What college should I attend? Uh, Where should I live? How should I vote? God, what's the right view on insert topic here? It's not that these questions are unimportant. They are certainly important. But they are not chiefly important. They are not of cosmic importance. These questions are subordinate questions to a larger, more deep question. How will I bear witness to the love, grace, and mercy of God known to me in Jesus Christ? How will I bear witness to the love, grace, and mercy of God in Jesus Christ? I mean, we we can wrongly assume that the primary function of Scripture is to give us specific answers to specific questions we face in our life. As a result, we end up finding fragments of verses scattered across the Bible that we apply blindly to 21st century lives in an attempt to justify what we're already doing with our lives, with our families, with our finances, with our politics, with our futures. But the the Bible rarely, 
rarely satisfactorily answers the ultra-specific questions we bring to it. Jesus was silent before his disciples' insistent inquiries. Will, will you restore the kingdom now, Lord? Huh? Now? Now? What about now? Yet? Now? Jesus in Scripture is often silent to our insistent inquiries about where should we live? What should we wear? How should we spend our money? We find very little specific direction in the Scriptures regarding what college we should attend, what major we should pursue, what internship to take, where to apply for work. We find little specific direction about the name of the person that we're going to marry, the number of children we're going to have, the size of a house we should own, the city in which we should live, whether or not we should invest our money for retirement, if we should buy a van or an SUV or an electric car, should we drink organic or non-organic milk, should we buy farm-fresh, free-range brown eggs or just the plain, cheaper white eggs. We find very little specific direction about the age in which we should retire, whether we should downsize the house after the kids move out, if we should move into a retirement community or stay on our own, how should we structure our will. We do not find specific answers to questions like, should we cremate our husband or bury his body? Should we sing at the funeral? Or whether or not we should be an organ donor, should we die prematurely? Are these bad questions? No. Far from it. They are not easy questions. These are important questions to wrestle with, to argue over, to ask God for wisdom and discerning. But ultimately, these questions are the wrong questions to ask if you want to know whether or not you are living a flourishing life of faith before the Lord. Jesus takes the very specific but very wrong question the disciples bring. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? And says, Hang on a minute. Don't miss the point. Your job, the thing that you should be preoccupied with, the ground for all the rest of the life you're going to construct is this. Are you bearing witness to the love, grace, and mercy of God in Jesus Christ? And if that is our aim, if that is our chief objective, then the lesser questions are built on top of that. How will the job I'm taking be a platform for me to bear witness to God's love and justice and peacemaking and hope bringing? How will the way I spend my money enable more people to encounter the reconciling, grace-filled, forgiving love of Jesus? How will the way I'm raising my kids show them and others the compassionate way of Christ? How will the university I attend shape my mind in such a way that I learn better to glorify God who is most certainly found lurking in every nook and cranny of astrophysics and biology and genetics and computational mathematics and systematic theology and cognitive behavioral therapy? By not answering the questions of timeline and political specification, Jesus seems to say, look, you are going to have to figure some of this stuff out as you go. I'm finding the graduates out there. You're going to have to figure out some of this stuff as you go. You will not leave this place with answers to all of those questions. Life as we noted last week, is far more improvisational than it is scripted. Jesus reminds us that in every season we'll have to wrestle and discern and pray and ask for wisdom from God. 
But the most important thing is that in everything we do, we are bearing witness to the love, grace, and mercy of God in Christ. We bear witness to him in the way we vote. We bear witness to him in the way we study, in the way we raise our families, in the way we give away our money. We bear witness to God's kingdom in the way that we forgive the sins of those who injure us by showing grace freely and generously, by wearing humility around like clothing and carrying compassion in our pockets like currency. We bear witness to Jesus' upside-down economy where the last are paid first and generously, where great debts are freely forgiven, where people with closets full of clothing find ways to clothe those wandering on the streets with next to nothing. We bear witness to Jesus' kingdom of joy and peace and community where all are welcomed in and where mere acquaintances become like the best kind of families. We bear witness to Jesus in the way wherever we take a job, in whatever neighborhood we move to, in the friendships we make in every single thing. Church, we are witnesses to Jesus. Our lives are hewn stones that point to what the kingdom of God is truly like. And that, church, that, I believe, is the urging of Christ to each of us on Ascension Sunday. Be witnesses to me wherever you are, whatever you choose to do whoever you choose to marry, in whatever vocation your hands find to work, bear witness to me. The bottom line is, many of the questions we ask will not have easy answers. More often than we'd like, there's not going to be even one right answer to some of them. But the guiding aim for us, the ultimate priority never changes. We are called to bear witness to him who holds all things together and who sits at the very center of all creation. Sometimes we'll use our words to bear witness. More often we'll use our work. But many years from now, as we reflect upon our lives, may each of us be able to see that we, like trees planted by streams of water, we experienced flourishing in this lifetime by chasing neither glory nor fame but by a lifetime of patient working out of the grace and mercy of God. Church, on Ascension Sunday, we remember Christ who ascended, leaving behind a million and one unanswered questions that we'll spend the rest of our lives wrestling with. But he left us with a single solitary trajectory. Go and bear witness. May we be a church who builds all of our lives on that foundation. I speak to you in the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let the church say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube, but better yet, You can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.